please be aware that this is a recording of a writing festival. As such, there are some adult concepts, probably a bit of swearing, and sometimes there might even be some triggering elements, so do be aware of that. If anything does make you feel uncomfortable, please stop listening at any point. Also, we do recommend you pop on some headphones. That way, the only person who can get offended is you. Welcome back to the Rights for Festivals podcast, where we're getting all lit up with the Wollongong Writers' Festival. If you'd like to know more about Wollongong Writers' Festival, go to www.wollongongwritersfestival.com or you can follow them on Twitter and Facebook. Backlash, when women speak their truth, with Michelle Seminara, Sabah Vasefi, Ruby Hamad and Alison Whittaker. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to this um, session on uh, backlash. So when women of writers um, speak their truth. So it'll be a really interesting and I hope really powerful um, session. So I just wanted to start by acknowledging um, the traditional owners of the land. And um, I wanted to read out a um, acknowledgement that was sent to me um, by uh, the late great auntie Carrie Reed Gilbert. So unfortunately she passed quite recently, but I think she would have loved to be at this session. She could have been an amazing speaker at this session because she was a true uh, warrior woman and she spoke her truth um, and I'm assuming she received a lot of backlash but nothing nothing stopped her and she's written this um, acknowledgement and she's given me permission to um, to use it. So I would like to acknowledge the Aboriginal people as the traditional owners, custodians of this nation on which we now live and work. We acknowledge the ancestors and elders who were and continue to be the storytellers. They help us to know our country and her people of the past and present more clearly. Finally, we are reminded of the journey that began with the Aboriginal people in this land but that now incorporates the larger family of Torres Strait Islanders and Australian people. And those are the words of Kerry Reed Gilbert. So thanks um, to her for permission to read that. Okay, so we're going to get started. I'll just quickly introduce you to our amazing panel. I'm just completely honoured um, to be able to chat to these three extremely powerful um, women. So uh, to my left here we have Alison Whittaker. She's a Gomorrah poet, lawyer and academic. Between 2017 and 18, she was a Fulbright Scholar at Harvard Law School where she was named the Dean Scholar in Race, Gender and Criminal Law. Her second book, Black Work, was released by Magabala Books in September 2018. And, by the way, it has just won the prestigious Queensland Literary Judith Wright Calanth Award. So congratulations on that one. It's an incredible book and it is available in the bookshop. Okay, so then we have the wonderful uh, Saba Vasefi. Saba is a multi-award winning writer, poet, filmmaker and journalist. She researches her PhD on elixic, elixic, am I saying that right? Exilic. Oh, that sounds better. Thank you. Feminist cinema studies and teaches at Macquarie University. Her poems have appeared in a variety of journals and she writes regularly for The Guardian and has received an honorary Brave Rising Star Award for her courageous writing on women's detention narratives and diasporic feminist discourse. 
And then we have the fabulous Rumi Hamad, who is a journalist, author and PhD student in media studies at UNSW. Her debut book, White Tears, Brown Scarred, was recently published by Melbourne University Press and it's also on sale in the bookshop. Thank you so much for being here. Okay, so Ruby... I'm going to get straight to the heart of the matter. Let's go for it. After you published your, I think it's probably fair to say, infamous article, although not fair that it became one, um, how white women use strategic tears to silence women of colour in The Guardian in 2018, you experienced all kinds of backlash and trolling. Um, I wanted to know if you could tell us a little bit about what led up to you writing that article and, and what happened afterwards. To borrow this, um, yeah, infamous, notorious, uh, pick, pick any word there. Um, so what led to writing it was, well, what the article describes was me um, trying to sort of make sense of these interactions I'd been, I'd been having um, with white uh, female friends or colleagues and that I thought going in, you know, well, oh, this is a friend, this is someone I work with, we can, we can have a discussion like this, it's okay if it's a bit uncomfortable or if we're disagreeing, but no, it's not kind of how it worked out. It was like everything I said was framed as, um, uh, you know, like a, a aggressive or um, irrational, uh, angry, and even in, in situations where I'd be like, no, I'm... I'm 100% sure that I'm the person who was wronged here. So how how is this being turned around on me? I'm um, sorry, I know I'm speaking in vague terms. I don't, you know, I'm not here to sort of try to <laughs> point fingers at particular people. But that's, and I mean, these are sorts of things that happen uh, to all of us, of course. You know, not every interaction we have is going to go the way we want it. But when it starts, uh, um, you, you, you have quite a few in a short space of time and they follow the same pattern then you just you, you kind of stop and you go, what's going on here? And so that's um, what that was about because I started to see, you know, people writing tweets and, and, and articles that, that touched on it. Uh, and uh, and um, those, the articles were mainly, uh, you know, in American articles at the time. And, but so they were, they were very much specific to that context of, of, of black and white there. So I, I would not have applied um, that to my situation, you know, an Arab in Australia, it, but it was just just the you know the the, the terminology, the whole um, oh you know I, I tried to talk to my white female colleague and and she told me I was being aggressive and then she started crying and complained about me. And it's like I recognise that <laughs> that's that's kind of so I I shared these articles and tweets on my Facebook page and just asked my my followers like you know brown and, and, and black women only like in Australia. Has this something like this ever happened to you? And I just got so much response that it was like, okay, there's some, you know, this is actually not just about me. It's not, you know, be indulgent if I'm writing something just about me. So that, that's how that happened. So I, I recognize that there's a definite uh, a, a pattern um, and it was worth writing about. So, of course, I wrote the article. There was uh, immediate, you know, sort of backlash from where you'd expect, you know, the, the sort of the, the more. Uh, overtly uh, racist um, and, and uh, you know, sections of society in the media. Uh, in the, the long-term trolling was was sort of the more disappointing, which is where I started to get a lot of um, sort of self-proclaimed lefties or, or socialists, a lot of them anonymous on Twitter. So 
I can't even tell you who they are. Um, but just repeatedly ganging up on me and and saying, you know, you're you're a grifter, you're using your identity to make money. It's like I, I would like to show you my bank account. But anyway, <laughs> and it was just, you know, first you ignore it or you try to or you try to engage, but it, it does, whether you like it or not, it snowballs. And eventually you start to see more and more people starting to say these things about you and starting to gang up on you and you're like, anything I say gets twisted against me. Um, I might, you know, I made mistakes as well. I might lash out, I'll be sarcastic, and then that screenshot and put up and like, see, see what she's like. And I talk about it in my book. It's like any time, you know, when a woman of colour is put in this position, if we snap, which is a healthy thing to do when you're being abused, if we snap, it's, it's quickly reframed as, as kind of like proof of, of her horrible nature. And so that was, that was all started happening like after the, the, that article. And, uh, yeah, and I got to the point a couple of months ago I gave up. I was like, I can't. I can't fight this. I had to leave Twitter. But then one of them followed me to Facebook and, and started like abusing me by message on my Facebook page. And so, yeah, so that's kind of, <laughs> you know, we're talking about the backlash. For me that has been the most disappointing is that there's – you know, people calling themselves progressives and socialists that are, that are saying and doing this. And uh, they have, some of them have, you know, connections in the media. I see that, they could, that they're connected online with, with well-known blue tick journalists. And I'm like, what's happening here? Like, and, and you know that this is whole, what we see is the tip of the iceberg. You don't know what's going on underneath um, and what narratives are being constructed around you that you can't fight because you're not actually privy to them. Um, but yeah, so anyway, I just got to the point where I, I was like, I, I can't. Um, so I had to remove myself from Twitter and yeah, I don't know. But I'll you let did the get a fabulous revenge by writing a fabulous book out of it. Um, thank you. Yeah. So, and I think that kind of maybe added to the whole, I think there's a lot of resentment of, about the book, but, um, you know, and yeah, I, I it's, it's, it's. Like, it is what it is. I, what do you do? Like, I, I don't – sometimes I regret writing it and then other times I don't because I do get a lot of messages from women around the world because, you know, people are buying it from around the world already and just saying, like, thank you. Like, you, you have put my life out there in a way that no one else ever has um, because what I've tried to do – I mean, a lot of the behaviours, a lot of the, the histories, not that I'm writing. I'm, you know, I'm not rewriting the history. It's not new. But I did want to just sort of really zoom in on a particular – aspect of it which is the interactions between uh, white women and you know non-white women women who are outside the bounds of being privileged by society thank you what about yourself Saba what's your personal experience been um, coming to Australia entering literary communities you're a poet um, also filmmaker activist academic journalist so you've entered a lot of different sort of zones I suppose and um, what reactions have you got when you've um, spoken your truth I would like to acknowledge the tradition and owner of the land we gather today and thank them for sheltering me and my daughter uh, first and when I came to Australia in 2010 as a refugee um, definitely like so many um, uh, you know, new generation of women who face um, displacement, I needed support. And when I seek support from refugee organization advocacy system, I realized there is lots of corruption among those industry. 
I'm not talking about everyone. You know, I'm not generalizing anything. And I'm not representing any community except myself because this is one of the attack always I receive. Oh, you are not representing refugee community. You don't look like us. You don't look like this. You don't look like that with your red lipstick, with your red nail polish. And um, yeah, I'm representing only myself as a person who lived under restriction and hard line of um, Islamic Republic of Iran as a fundamentalist regime, as a woman who has to wear hijab, full coverage since she was seven, to go in order to go to school, as a person who didn't like to wear hijab and she was forced to wear it. So, um, yeah, I'm talking from my own perspective, from the experience I had. And when I seek support from refugee organization, I realize they are constantly using all my hard work to get funding. And one of them, for example, without my consent, she, they used my story to get funding. And they said they wrote a piece and they add so many fake information to make me very, you know, uh, prominent refugee. And they get credit out of my hard work and my trauma to say, we lift this person up, while it was only my hard work, because when I asked them to help me to get into the university, they offered me to work in McDonald's or help me to get a job in Woolworths, while I was one of the youngest lecturers in one of the prestigious universities in Iran when I was 24. And um, that kind of experiences was repeating in my life. And when I started to speak up, it was, um, the back, it was the beginning of the backlash I started to receive because I, was, uh, you know, I wasn't under the support of any political party because I realized in Australia you are sandwiched between left and right. You know? If you are under the umbrella of left, you have some support. Or, you know, but I'm very individual, and I think sometimes I'm very naive. And now... Um, I have very, very fresh experience to tell you. Uh, Ruby was uh, referring to a person. I made a logic, you know, official complaint because she was harassing me, sexually harassing me in my workplace. And I block her, but she's finding other friends in Twitter or Facebook and sending so many crap about me to misrepresent me. You know, I try to find some strategy to deal with the hate and abuse I experience or backlash. And I was thinking here is not Iran. I have freedom to make complain about people who harass me. But see, this is the consequence of making official complaint to protect yourself because you know after the complaint and I have evidence to show people that I won that case because she was harassing me for a long time. And that person caused me to be suicidal. I might just give a bit of, <laughs> just to see where I fit into it. And I, I'm wishing I hadn't told her this morning and waited till after this. Someone messaged me late at night on my Facebook page and was just saying, started starting accusing Saba of a lot of things that I'm not going to say right now. Um, and as someone who has themselves been the subject of this kind of um, allegations and accusations, I... You know, I'm not, my immediate response was not to sort of, uh, I, I do not want to sort of uh, rebuff her distress. I said, I'm really sorry you're feeling this way, etc. But I also, 
had to, you know, ask Saba, what's what is all this about? Because, um, yeah, like like there there's some pretty horrible allegations in there, and you just don't know, like is is like who this person is, what 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 is this, what's going yeah. on, and and and, and like. <laughs> This whole—I don't know—but this whole, this whole sort of uh, this platform that we now have, or this this profile we have, it has has comes comes with a lot of sort of thorns attached, and yeah, you can't help. Yeah, ongoing. It. I'm I'm trying to say, yeah. you know, ongoing harassment is part of backlash. Yeah. I think that's you know, you don't have any um, tool, enough tool to support yourself when you are not following establishment, when you try to subverse the norms where you are not in the box that society tried to boxing you in that particular box. For example, when I made a critical point about one of the refugee organizations, about, um, you know, refugee week event, that they include only one person from refugee background in the refugee week event, and all of their speakers were white, and they, uh, they didn't invite me. Uh, I was one of their ambassadors. They tried to exclude me as much as they can. And, uh, you know, if organization that work for refugees, they are not open to listen, you know, even listening, not practically, you know, doing something. It's very terrifying. They are not open to listen. They are not, they, they are not willing to include those people. And it was very um, terrifying for me that they, reduce, they withdraw an invitation from a child refugee artist and they included another white celebrity as their speaker. And when I spoke up and say, what's going on if there is any human resources or financial resources under the name of refugee community, it should lift their, that community up. And they said, no, because we use high-profile people to tell how we should deal, how we should welcome refugees. And I think celebrities has enough platform to, to talk. If we have any small platform, uh, if we don't use that kind of human resources or financial resources for those people to be heard, it's a form of corruption. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Um, Alison, um, as an Aboriginal woman working in the fields of law and literature, what has been your experience of um, backlash when you're speaking your own truth but also advocating on the on the behalf of others? Yeah. Um, Maybe strangely for this panel, um, when I was first invited to it, um, my initial thought was I, I don't think I've really experienced a backlash of the character that I've come to expect as a woman of colour and as an Aboriginal woman. Um, and I've been thinking for a little while about why that is. I think um, I, I'm white passing, so I enjoy kind of that set of privileges from a particular kind of racialization. Um, I also, um, I think perform particular markers of uh, achievement that white people respect, um, like the H word, as soon as you have that associated with you to any degree, you get all this kind of cage that's just completely undeserved. Um, but there's another reason, I think, why I've lacked a backlash of a particular character, which is that lots of people are keen to associate themselves with Indigenous ideas. Um, and that requires sometimes that white publics not engage with them seriously. Sometimes they pander to them. Um, sometimes they kind of just like to wear them as status symbols. And to some extent, it can be difficult to uh, provoke a reaction um, that's contrary to white interests because everything they do 
um, Eileen Morton Robinson kind of refers to it as a cultural entrapment. They just kind of um, treat everything you present to them as like further and further knowledge that they can use um, to acquire you in some way. So, yeah, there's a tension there um, while I'm also very grateful that I'm not getting harassed um, to the same degree that other people are. Um, part of that comes with um, not being taken seriously sometimes outside your peerage. And I think we saw over the last month what happens when um, Indigenous writing really begins to make an impact with one particular columnist in one particular newspaper who um, I think is responding from a place of um, being threatened because a particular book, a piece of research, um, is beginning to have a really massive impact um, so I guess in some ways the backlash comes when you're having an impact. It's a, it's a reactive violence that emerges from that. So there's a, a sense where um, you're welcomed into a space more as an as a object in a sense rather mm. than people critically engaging with your work and actually having a response, whether it be negative or positive. Yeah, it feels yeah. like sometimes you're an intellectual pet. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really gross. And one one symptom, I guess, of it is um, not at this writers' festival, but at the others where you'll be physically stroked by people. That's creepy. Um, people will talk to you slowly. <laughs> um, yeah, there's just no backlash because they didn't really hear you. They heard their association with you. Okay. Yeah, got it. Uh, Ruby, I wanted to ask you um, and all of you actually, what is the personal toll? You know, there must be a huge personal toll when you do experience a lot of trolling as well on social media. Um, Sorry, yeah. <laughs> um, it's funny you said that first because I've got, like, I've got a chapter in the book called Pet or Threat. Like, that's that's kind of sometimes how it feels that we are. Uh, you're either, a, and when I say threat, not necessarily physically, in, intellectually. Um, but in terms of the toll, I mean, I mean, we've just, we've been sort of... Um, already getting into that it's it's hard like you, you'd be you, a lot of the time I'm like should I just stop writing uh what else am I gonna do like you know I'm in my 40s now like it, it's like this is what my name is associated with how do I how do you move past that if and if I wanted to and, and get like a normal quote unquote job like you, it's I don't have that kind of uh it's not that easy uh, even if I wanted to um but also it's yeah, the, the misrepresentation is the hardest thing to to deal with because uh, a lot of the things I see that people say about me has very well, nothing to do with what I've actually written. It's again, it's it's that whole um, we're just going to construct this narrative and uh, and, and you know of, of who we say she is, and then anything she doesn't say, we says we can just sort of slot in. Um, so it leaves you almost like feeling like you can't say anything um, online because one little slip up, and it's happened. Like you say, you say one thing that they can twist in it, and they do. Um, so you know, well, what's it done is I don't, I don't, I don't trust people anymore. Like I, I get, you know, when someone messages, uh, even if they're like being quite friendly, and then I, you start to think, is anyone who says they're my friend online are they really my friend? Are they got, like, are they running away and like you know? sharing our conversations in all those, you know, all the direct messaging groups, chat groups that are happening on Facebook and, and Twitter. And it, it's, it's, it's sad and it's hard and probably the most demoralising thing is the solidarity you think you're going to get from sort of left-wing um, 
groups or from the left or from other people of color doesn't necessarily materialize and it's yeah so you you're you start to feel there's many times you're thinking why am I even doing this like if people of color are treating me like this um and treating others like cyber like this then what are we actually fighting for if we're not if we're just gonna we're actually literally exhibiting the same behaviors and the same um marginalizations and exclusions and then what's what's the point like why don't we may as well just keep it as is like so yeah like this is this is the impact you start to question everything and what about your writing maybe Saba and Alison does it affect your writing as well does it change your writing where you feel you have to write about particular subjects or you know um in me no I think I'm very stubborn (laughs) yeah I really, I think I am, you know, I remember when I was, maybe I said this memory, when I was 13, I had to wear hijab to go to school and my mom was working in the same school and I shaved my hair and when I arrived to school, I take off my scarf and my uh, teacher said to me, oh, troublemaker, what did you do with your hair? I had very long hair. I said, I don't have hair to wear hijab anymore and the school suspended me three days and I was too young, I think 13, 13, I think. But it didn't stop me because the teacher humiliated me. She said to me, no one wouldn't marry you because you're so mad. And um, I think it's still repeating in that experience is keep repeating in my life. I'm writing about people in offshore on Nauru and there is different reaction. Someone like Peter Dutton said they are all liars. Someone perpetuate his ideology by excluding these women from mainstream narrative. Someone like, you know, for example, when I said to Tracy Spicer, as an icon of Me Too, I talked about one particular cases about a woman. She has been raped on Nauru. She was working in an airport and she was stopped by a group of local men while she was riding her motorcycle. And they stopped her and they hold her mouth and one of them slapped on her face and the other man penetrated his penis on her mouth. And it is not only based on the interview. You know, whatever I wrote, it's based on the, inter- in the um, actual fact and leaked information I received. And all the medical reports stated that this has happened. And then I said to Tracy Spicer, she said to me, oh, darling, I'm so busy with Me Too. And I was thinking, what's the Me Too about? You know? Uh, what was the question? Oh, sorry. Oh, it doesn't oh, matter. Uh, sorry, yeah, yeah, I have this problem. Um, but I think, no. For, or, for example, in 2016, when I uh, established Social Justice Award, and for the first time, I rewarded... Behruz Buchani for his work, for his writing. And at that time, it wasn't very fashionable to reward a detainee person. The attack I received, I cannot count it. After that award ceremony in the New South Parliament House, I quit everything and I said, I would like to go back to Iran. I think dealing with fundamentalists, it's easier than to dealing with white supremacists because they kill you with the knife, with the gun, and you know you, you will be die. But psychologically, the psychological death is something at that time I didn't 
have any knowledge to deal with, with it. But gradually, you know, because people accused me more, they misrepresent more. Or sometimes when people work with me after three months and they say, oh, so, so you're so lovely, but you are loud, yes. <laughs> and, you know, but the assumption they heard about me, they heard, you know, I'm a very terrible person maybe. Um, but gradually I learned how should I deal with that. I realized for some point I was thinking if I remove my lipstick, maybe I receive less critical comment. But gradually I was thinking, no, this is who am I? If anyone doesn't want to see me, I categorize them in exactly the fundamentalist regime that they didn't want me. You know, fundamentalist regime executes you in the public because they don't want you because you are not in align with them. And I think whoever try to, we can, we have enough space to have conversation, to talk, to raise issues, you know. And there is, I think, enough rule in Australia to support people if they are right, actually. And if people just, instead of taking serious action, legal action, they just attack without any evidence, they just throw their poison over my life, I just try to detoxic my life by keep myself in my own territory to deterritorialize de- my life first and re-territorialize my life to staying by staying along with some of friend like Ruby who knows what am I talking about like you like my new friend and yeah gradually I learned I don't need to be accepted by everyone and during that period that I quit everything after social justice award diaspora symposium that I'm referring to I was reading history and it was one of the most uh, interesting point that I learned from the history. In Iranian history, first woman who established first girls' school, she was sent to exile to very bad place area in Iran, south of Iran, I think, by Ayatollah, by extremists, by Islamic extremists. And Ayatollahs and uh, Islamic extremists called that school brothel and called her prostitute by taking girls to school. And but because of her persistence, someone like me in the next generation could be educated. And I think it's not about, gradually I learned, because at the beginning I was thinking I'm a problematic person, I have personal problem maybe. You know, maybe I have personality disorder. You know, just I'm making problem in all of my life. But gradually when I heard from different women, from different area, from indigenous community, from Muslim community, from people in detention, from so many women, you know, in, in the margin of society, by reading history, I found it, no, this is historical problem. And this is not only Australia, it's global issues. That's why feminism is international, uh, you know, movement. It's not local, because during the history around the globe, women who stand up and spoke up differently about subversing norms, they face this problem in different level, in different, uh, for different reasons. Am I clear? What am yes, I trying to very say? clear. Yeah. Yes. I, I still have thick accent, I know. I have so many grammar errors. <laughs> so uh, there's, there's a power in, I suppose there's a period, as you were saying as well, Ruby, where you initially think it's me. Am I crazy? Why is everyone having this reaction to me? But then when you realise 
No, yeah, it's a systemic thing. There's other people. Yeah, it's, you don't it's know. You know what people said about you. You know, or someone read some tweet against you somewhere, or someone said something behind you. All of a sudden, I see someone's behavior is totally changed, and I I'm very defenseless. I don't know why. You know, I cannot find. But when it's repeat psychologically, you feel you know. It's not me. It's you. Yeah. It's still <laughs> like we're human. So it's still like I've written this book. Like I know. But, you know, but I still have – I still go back and forth and I still have – and it's like maybe like it is me. Like I like where am I going wrong? What, you know, am I coming across – you know, so like you, you, it's always going to doubt yourself. that's part of the plan, isn't it? Yeah, to get it you to think you just to be crazy and shut up basically. Yeah. Yeah. This is a bit – I mean we know that's happened with all women for all time. Like anyway, if she, the woman doesn't, you know, conform to what's – expected of her role as a woman then she's crazy yeah, lock her up hysteria etc etc yes, yeah. so and i think that's magnified um uh when you're a, a, a woman of color uh, definitely and so it's it's hard because it's we know it's, it's a strange thing society because these are things that we know happen we know how people are gaslighted. We know about this history of branding people who are nonconformists or who are troublemakers as crazy so that we don't take anything they say seriously. But then it still happens in front of your eyes and people still buy it. And it's, it's very strange. Um, Alison, I wanted to ask you, because um, you brought up some really interesting points. It's one thing to be talking about speaking your truth, but when is it wiser or more appropriate to withhold and not give away um, your story to either institutions or you know, other people who may not you know, treat them with respect or who may appropriate them? Um, so this is kind of something where I put kind of my lawyer's hat on as well as my poet's hat. But um, the, the main area of law that I'm concerned with is coronial inquests and royal commissions, kind of um, storytelling jurisdictions like that. And they're really focused on um, kind of the amount of energy that uh, a family who has been wronged kind of put into them. So um, yesterday, sorry, yesterday, Friday, um, the findings into the death of a young man, uh, young Dungari fella, David Dungay Jr., uh, came down. And that was a, a process in which uh, the family had invested four years of really concentrated strategic advocacy, um, I think a, a great deal of intellectual and political generosity, um, providing a model um, that they thought would get justice for, for their son, um, and what eventuated out of four years of intense storytelling that was inherently vulnerable um, was that the coroner said some kind of nice things at the opening about uh, who David Dungate Jr. was as a person uh, and then concluded with a poem from his sister. And in the middle, um, he refused almost every single one of their submissions. So there's a tendency to, I think, um, when our stories are out there, to, for them to become decorative um, in the systems that are used against us. Um, and in a way that kind of seems like they feel like they have our implicit endorsement. That's something I'm becoming uh, more and more aware of, I think, especially in a medium like poetry where um, the, it's deliberately non-prescriptive and you invite the audience in um, to bring their own meaning that's a generosity that's um, not always taken well. And, again, it's not as simple as kind of like um, whether they're 
backlash or coercion or coercive. It's a really complicated extractive relationship um, that I don't think is unique to Indigenous peoples and truth-telling, but is certainly on this continent very particularly directed at us. It just, um, from what you're describing, it just sounds really insidious and slippery. Mm. Yeah, and it's a way of not not coming to terms with truth. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, they don't engage us. We are running out of time, which is so sad. I wish we could have had two hours. I'd love to listen to you um, talk a lot more. But um, I wanted to bring up a, another slippery question just to finish off, which is where does the line, um, where is the line drawn in terms of uh, your own accountability when you experience backlash? So not to say that anyone deserves it, but how much do we put out there? How much should we expect back? You know, Or is there a good way of going about um, telling your story or is it just best to just be bold and just say stuff it, you know, where where does the line of accountability get drawn? What do you think, Ruby? Um, well, uh, it's interesting, like, we're, we're talking about, like, our story and our truth and it's still subjectivising everything we say as if we're, well, there's the truth and then there's what we're allowed to say. So... Uh, I write in a way, I, sometimes I'll put myself in it as, as I refer to myself and, or I'll tell a little bit about, you know, I might use an example from my own life, uh, but mostly I don't, like, um, and I deliberately, you know, in this book, like, it's mostly academic research and historical research and I deliberately stepped back from it uh, and wrote it in that sort of detached, uh, informative way uh, so that... It's it, it it is like it's it's a, it's a, there are objective statements. Man, I'm not saying that all of it is right. Like, well, I think it's right, but you, know, you get what I mean, right? I'm, I'm rambling now, but um, so it's it's you know I wasn't saying this. I'm going to tell my story here. So I I spoke to a lot of women, um, and I did a you know the whole first half of the book is all historical research. So uh, and yet it's still sort of I'm still put in this box of. You know, oh, she's just talking identity politics and, and she doesn't care about class. And it's just like, no, this is a very material, like, you know, I talk about material conditions. So um, in terms of accountability, I'd love people to engage with it and critique my work. So when, when people criticise me online, if they've actually, when they actually critique something I've written, and, and then I will respond to that, um, you know, and... I've often gone back to editors and said, you know what, this was pointed out to me on, on, on Twitter or on Facebook and I think they've got a point. Can we change it and make a little amendment at the end? And I've done that. But when people are just attacking me, then I don't think I have, you know, I don't think I need to respond to that. If people turn up to my book launch and then write a whole thread that it was full of fabrications and misrepresentations, mm. putting words in my mouth and in the mouth of people that were there that were never said, mm. then I don't think I need to respond to that because no. that's, that's, that's not on me. No, you you just quite like them to engage with your work. Yeah, like which isn't really critique what old, I've said you know, and what I've written, mm. and if it is problematic, then I will I do respond to that. Mm. But but mm. I don't respond. You know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna you know take on people's you know uh, mistruths. What about you, Saba? Is there is there a good way to go about um, telling your story to try and mitigate back, backlash? Where where how much, how much are we responsible when we put our story into the public for what comes back? How, how much do we have 
responsible? Yeah, just for what in terms of uh, people might say, well, you, you've you've gone oh, on to Twitter or just, Facebook yeah. and you've said it, so now I have the right to say blah blah blah. Yeah, I think mm. yeah. As I said, mm. gradually I learned to not take care very much mm-hmm. about people uh, with toxic language. Mm. I think progressive people will articulate their um, a point yeah. uh, with if they want to make any changes. I'm very open to criticism and I'm very open to learn. If you look at the history of my life, you know, I arrived in Australia, I couldn't talk English properly. I'm writing and I'm writing my poetry in English. I'm writing my article and research in English. It means I was thirsty to learn and I learned from the criticism sometimes, I think. And always I ask for the feedback. And you are one of the person I'm constantly asking. Um, no, I'm very open to criticism. even, And I'm very open to sit alongside of people who are not agree with me. Uh, but I'm not dealing with toxic people at all. Because I don't want to, you know, if there is some infection somewhere, do you want to be infected? Because infection kills us. You know, but yeah, in art, you know, I'm obsessed about beauty. And I think people who use the beautiful language and add aesthetic to their language to criticize me or be disagree with me, uh, they really want to change something, change my idea, change my mood, change my behavior. But someone with toxic language, they just want to kill me. And I don't want to be in touch or to be around killer or executor. And I escape from executor in Iran, you know. And I don't want to be alongside of um, or in the, you know in the environment that executor or killer are there. Yeah, it would be nice if we could just have some civilized and informed discussions. Yeah, rather than character assassination. Uh, what about yourself, Alison? Where do you go on the sort of accountability scale? What do you? What are your thoughts on that one? Um, I care a lot about when people um, are generous enough to give you the gift of critique. Uh, I think maybe because I thirst for it so much because I've failed to provoke a reaction with my work because of my structural position. Um, But it has to be given, I think, with that spirit of generosity Um, and the performance of critique in a public forum can egg us on in ways that I think is really unhealthy, especially for us as a a public politic of women of colour. Um, it's so I've made it like a personal commitment to not dish out critique willy-nilly um, to offer public critique only if it's really extensive so like a, I'm a book critic as well and I think it's uh, a gift and it's fair to engage people seriously in their work including where it's failed um, but also I think that necessitates um, a, a degree of which that you have to accept the criticism as an act of care um, for the the policy that we're developing. I mean, dissent within that is healthy. Divergence of opinion and the friction between those can be um, really interesting ways where we can explore how the knowledge is developing in the moment. Um, And so, yeah, I guess um, there's a part of that accountability that I enjoy, but I agree that um, the way it's kind of formulated um, makes it hard to accept in good faith sometimes. 
Thank you. That's such a nuanced answer. Um, we are running short on time, but I really wanted to leave some time for each of these fabulous writers to read a very sort of quick portion of their work because um, their, you know, their written work speaks, um, you know, so eloquently. So we're going to start with Ruby. She's going to read a couple of um, paragraphs from her new oh, book, White Tees, Brown Scarves. I wasn't planning on doing this, but I think this this paragraph will work well. Um, okay. When I began this book, my central question was, what happens when racism and sexism collide? My answer requires that we begin with the notion that the extent to which we, as individuals from a diverse range of backgrounds, correspond to the stereotypical features associated with our gender in the minds of others is the decisive factor determining how they perceive us and how they treat us. It impacts our lives in ways many of us may never have considered. Whatever the intersection, be it gender identity, sexuality, disability, or something else, every experience of marginalization is made more acute when race is thrown into the mix. Women of color who attempt to address an issue that is detrimental to them in some way, almost invariably come up against a wall of white fragility so immovable, so lacking in empathy, so utterly unrepentant that the first few times it happens, you naturally assume you are imagining it, that you are the problem, that you should have gone about things differently and you will go about things differently from now on. So you do. You adjust your reactions. You try to play nice. You watch your tone. But it keeps happening. Angry, sad, yelling, begging, it doesn't seem to matter until at some point you, as a woman of colour, realise in shock that regardless of the facts of the situation, the real problem isn't even about you. It is how white society regards you. It is how white society treats you because you, as a woman of colour, do not measure up to their image of what a woman is and should be in order to be believed, supported and defended. Thank you so much, Ruby. Um, can we have a poem from you, Alison? Yeah, sure. Love it. Um, in the interest of time, I'll read um, uh, perhaps a smaller poem. Um, if you give me a sec to find it. Comparative. Their fervors. Dreams. Giving you fevers. Their fevers. Giving you fewer. Their fervors, learning, moving. Their dreams, giving us fevers. Their fevers, giving us fewer. They dream, they learn, they. So, Saba, we'll end off with you. Maybe just one poem and a song because, um, yeah, I wish we had like two hours. That would have been awesome, but not to worry. Thank you. خورشید از قم با تمام غرورش 
پشت ابر سیاهی آشغانه به گریه می من با قلبی به سپیدی روز با امید رهایی می به گلستان همچت رواقی لا بلای درختان I am fed up and there is no more air left in my lungs to breathe out. There is a snail in my head sauntering the maru cramping me, encamping me out of my mind. My feet have to get me out of here before the heels crack And this, with its exotic accent, slices my skin. My feet have to go and sacrifice day to draw out the panic nights. Let's get under its skin. I hang from the scaffold, the contortionings of melancholy, and I need my feet to walk me down from here. Come again. with a new life after death in exile. For now, I will settle for life and for letting my feet carry me to the kitchen to make a herbal tea for the one who lives in the page I write. And then onto the balcony to abduct the crows, yawning like Orbidance at the windows. Blood on my hands, I let my feet take me back to the page where I sit and fall back in love. And I pester the pleat, the skirt, till it falls from my waist. Now I have the day on my terms and the system. I squeeze. I squeeze national security between my legs. Till it cries out for mercy, dies for justice. Back where I wish I had never been born. They were a cancer stronger than this. Here where belonging is hatred and exclusion. I crush national security between my lips, under my fingers, under my feet. I squeeze national security between my thoughts till it wishes it had never been born. If you'd like to hear more from Wollongong Writers Festival, because trust me, there's some really amazing sessions yet to drop, or you just want to hear more from regional writing festivals, then head on over to our website, www.rightsforwomen.com forward slash rights for festivals. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the Rights for Festivals podcast, or you can go and subscribe wherever you get your pods, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, all those good places. Please do give us a rating and review because then we can spread the goodness and other people can find us too. Thank you so much for listening to the Rights for Festivals podcast and supporting regional writing festivals.
This podcast episode was produced and edited by Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting. Podcasts for a positive world.